Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, Sourdough, your faithful, loyal, tireless host here coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Thanks again for tuning in to this show. We do it for you. It's all about you. And if it wasn't for you, well, then I'd just be talking to a microphone in vain. So, Thank you for showing up. Thank you for being loyal and subscribing to the show. Speaking of subscribing, please be sure to share this episode, like and comment. Uh, Makes the algorithm gods happy. And if you haven't subscribed or follow us, uh, please do. Yeah. Wow. What's going on, guys? How the hell are you? Life's been kind of crazy on this end, multiple fronts. But what else is new, right? And so I am so thrilled about this episode today. We have a VIP guest that I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing from. And I'm very grateful that he took time out of his busy schedule to come and speak to me and class up the joint for about an hour. And it was a great conversation. And I'll tell you about it in one sec. But before we get into it, I want to be sure to encourage you to go to our website, notrealart.com. Check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Always fresh content there, celebrating artists, elevating artists, helping them promote their work and tell their stories. So please be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and go check it out. Also want to tell you about a new book we published, Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy. It's a memoir written by Katie Love, who is a LAOG, LA stand-up comic who survived the Jehovah's Witness cult and found comedy as an escape hatch and has an incredible life story. And so we published her book, Two Tickets to Paradise. And so you can find that on Amazon as an ebook. We're going to be dropping the print on demand version and the audio book here over the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that, but go buy that ebook. It's $4.95 and you can find it on Amazon. And it's an incredible story, inspiring. And trust me, we all need more inspiration in our lives. Today's guest, I tell you, this was a big get. I'm thrilled today to be talking to Lauren Buckman. And if you don't know Lauren, you're about to. Lauren is now the president emeritus at Art Center here in Pasadena, California. 
Art Center is a world-class college dedicated to all things art, design, creativity. Some have called it the Harvard of uh, art, design, creativity. Who knows about that? But I do know that they are the top-tier, world-class organization if you are a person seeking a life and career and profession uh, in the arts or design, animation, any number of things. Art Center is a fantastic organization, institution. And Lauren Buckman was the president there for 13 years. And when he took office in 2009, he quickly engaged students, faculty, and staff, and alumni and trustees to define what a great art and design college should be in the 21st century. His talent for gaining consensus among diverse constituencies proved key to Art Center's mission-driven growth, uniting the community around a shared vision. He led the development of Create Change 1.0, the strategic plan that guided the institution from 2011 to 2016. And that plan really spearheaded a, a ton of growth and a huge capital raise for the college of over $124 million. He worked very closely, obviously, with the city of Pasadena for approval of the 15-year master plan to further develop the campus. And, you know, of course, as an educator at his core, he is always working hard to share his knowledge and his expertise. And so as part of his advocacy for the value of art and design, he hosted a podcast called Change Lab, Conversations on Transformation and Creativity, podcast produced by Art Center, in which he conducted intimate interviews with leading artists and innovators. Sound familiar? <laughs> and today, one of the things we're going to be talking about is his recent book, Make to Know, From Spaces of Uncertainty to Creative Discovery, and it's published by Thames and Hudson. And I'll tell you what, this book is fantastic. I'm still working through it, but it's amazing because essentially... Well, one of the key tenets of the book is this idea that, you know what, to be an artist, to be a designer, to be creative, it isn't about some genius vision that just appears from the muses. It's not about maybe divine inspiration or madness, or you're either born with it or you're not. No, it is a iterative process of trial and error and just getting going, getting started, rolling up your sleeves and start doodling, start experimenting, start improvising, start playing start making. And it's in that course of making that uh, discoveries are made and learnings are made and, and inspiration is found and growth is found. And so his book, Make to Know, really is a wonderful exploration of that, talking to hundreds of artists and designers about their making process and how they use making in the act, the iterative act of trial and error to fulfill their creative expression. So go get the book, get it on Amazon, Make to Know by Lauren Buckman. And I just love my conversation with Lauren because, you know, he's just such a wonderful human, obviously incredibly smart, intelligent, experienced. And we sort of geeked out, I think, a little bit on these topics of creativity and inspiration and what is, who is an artist and what is art? And I just, you know, I felt like it was one of those conversations that we could have done Joe Rogan style where we go for three hours, but we didn't. We hung tight. I think we, <laughs> we talked for about an hour, hour 15, but I was just so grateful that he came through and sat down. We had a little bit of technical difficulty. We tried to get together a week ago and couldn't quite pull it off technically, but we were able to circle back this week and come together and actually have a, a wonderfully robust and inspiring, rich conversation that I know I was you know edified by and was inspired by. So I think you'll hear that and get that from this 
wonderful, rich conversation that we had with the one and only Lauren Buckman. So I guess without further ado, you didn't come to hear me ramble, not like this anyway. Without further ado, let's get into this really interesting, compelling, and cerebral conversation with the one and only Lauren Buckman. Lauren Buckman, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Delighted to be here. Delighted to be here, Scott. You're classing up the joint. I'm so uh, I'm so grateful to have you here. <laughs> ah, it's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> well, you've been so incredibly patient as we were discussing before the, the the technical challenges that we've had in terms of getting together are sort of unprecedented for me. But hey, we're here. I'm grateful. Tell me, Lauren. I mean, what would the world look like if for example, design thinking was taught from K through 12, just like math and English and science. I think the world would be a place of, let me be bold, a greater thriving of humanity. I think one of the greatest and one of the lessons of this book is that we perennially underestimate the human capacity to make. And I'm not just talking about being talented artists and designers. I'm talking about that we are makers, that that is a fundamental characteristic of what it means to be human. Yes. And we make in all kinds of ways. A toddler makes when it learns to walk. We make when we learn to speak. We improvise when we speak, if you think about it. When we're speaking, we're using a kind of system. There's a frame, there's a language structure, but we don't fully know what it is we're going to say until we engage in the act of saying it. On a bigger scale, we need to think about who we are as makers when we educate our kids. I think we need to think about who we are as makers when we are leaders. I think we need to think about who we are as makers when we consider entrepreneurs. I think we need to think about who we are as makers when we're engaging in spiritual quests. I think, you know, I mean, look, prayer itself is a kind of making, a kind of improvisation, really, that when it's alive and real is part of a discovery process. Anyway, there's so much that I think we need to understand about ourselves as makers. And what artists and designers teach us is something that we can understand as, as having profound implications for how we live. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating to me to think about how we have elevated other cultural dimensions. For example, and I don't mean to pick on Sports. I love sports. But for example, how as a species we have elevated sport over art, for example. I mean, I would argue that art and culture, quote unquote, takes a backseat to the sort of popularity of sports, whether it be, you know, football or or soccer or whatever. But it's fascinating to me. Why? Because I mean, I agree with you. I mean, we are all makers. We all make things, whether we recognize it or not. And from the very beginning, when we were making tools just to survive. But somehow that, you know, I guess has so much utility. I don't know. I mean, what say you about that? How did our species end up celebrating baseball over stand-up comedy, for example? Well, I think stand-up comedy or maybe some something that challenges them, some artwork that challenges them to engage or ask the deeper questions of life. Maybe the idea that sports can be a little bit more escapist than art that challenges us, challenges our souls on the mm -hmm. deepest level. But another angle, and maybe another way to think about your question too, is the creativity of sports. And to understand that sports in itself is a kind of fascinating way of understanding a certain level of making, again, that is sort of like my concept of make to know, but if you just 
get it down to its barest essentials to improvisation. Because you have to build up skill. So one of the principles that interests me so much is that the relationship of skill to creative freedom is this wonderful combination. And really, you know, so much of what we teach at Art Center has to do with really the greater the skill, the greater the, the freedom mm-hmm. to express. Mm-hmm. And that if mm-hmm. you're, you know, the great improvisers, right? Think about Keith Jarrett. Think about what he can do with the piano, right? Mm-hmm. That concert at Cohn, the great... He, absolute precise and incredible skill and talent the preparation all those skills all those arpeggios use those as metaphors for whatever you want to think about and the expansiveness of the discovery that come from being rooted in that kind of skill right Mm -hmm. and sports is similar too of these athletes who have honed their skills and their abilities to this amazing extent that they can be responsive in the moment they can understand the improvisational nature of what they need to do when that ball's coming at them, when they need to make that turn, how the puck is going to come to them, how they can anticipate that, when the shot has to be taken, whatever the sport may be. But that there is this deep creativity of sports that is maybe unexplored because we focus narrowly on what it's all about. It doesn't directly answer your question, but it's an interesting way to think, because I think the real answer to your question is what I said earlier, is that there's an escapism to it. It, It's not challenging our soul. It's not challenging who we are. It's not forcing us into it. We're escaping into the kind of the rhythm of what that sporting event is all about. But really, when you think about it, there is this creativity to it. And when it works, you know, the playwright Bertolt Brecht always loves sports because It was like the theater he wanted to have. People sit in a sports arena and they can be immediately critical of what's going on. The Mm. shortstop shouldn't have thrown to first. The shortstop should have thrown to second and have a conversation about it. And he wanted his theater to be like that, that you Mm. watch these various scenes transpire on the stage and you're critical of it. And that kind of critique was what he envisioned as the theater that was going to be alive and that was going to be political and that was going to change the world. Yeah, you know, you've hit on some really interesting things there. One of this notion, well, a couple of things. I mean, one is this idea that, you know, the more skill, the more freedom. Love that, 100%. More tools in your toolbox, the more you can make, right? I mean, at the end of the day, right? Then you sort of hit on this notion of too narrowly defining what we mean when we say make, Yeah. right? Because, I mean, I think that's part of the answer to the question, which is, as our culture, maybe just in this country, maybe in other countries, I don't know, but it feels like we have become incredibly, well, we can be incredibly one-dimensional and very narrow when we think about what it means to make something. And, you know, and I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, who's was a very successful defense attorney, and he was lamenting that he's not creative enough. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, the, the the successful cases that you've won, you had to use that creative brain to, to connect these dots and see the white space and see the, the, the things that no one else saw to win those cases. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And it's so interesting how, to your point, narrowly defined creativity is in our culture. And it's reserved for the artist or the designer writ large. Right. Mm -hmm. And even there, it's reserved for the genius. In fact, one of the things that I explore and one of the reasons why I think like, why, what is this all about? Like, why can't we grab on to understanding 
who we are as humans, the, our capacity to make, why there is creativity in the very thing that you just described in the legal field. And what I trace down in my thinking about it and interested in your responses, there are kind of three threads that go through Western culture anyway, though there are some overlaps with other cultures, but we'll hold on to that for a minute. And the three threads are, A, a preoccupation with genius and the fact that it is only the genius who has the creative prowess, the creative ability to really make something, or that's really all that's, that's important. And the rest of us, the rank and file of humanity, don't have that kind of creativity. We're not artists. The second is an association of creativity and artistry with madness and our deep focus on the mad artist, the, the Sylvia Plath who puts her head in the oven, the Van Gogh who cuts his ear off. You go back to Aristotle, and there's always an association, or Seneca wrote, actually, there's an, always an association of artistry with madness, with creativity with madness. And the third is our preoccupation in our culture with creativity as being somehow divinely inspired, right? You go back to Homer, right? The bard. Human beings become a channel for something else, for the gods, for the muses to visit us and to express through us. But we're just the kind of the chamber. We're just the, the channel through which that expression happens. And if you take genius and madness and divine inspiration, you get a kind of definition of creativity that is limiting and narrow and misses out completely on the homemaking piece. I'm not saying, by the way, that there aren't geniuses among us. There are. I'm not saying there aren't mad people and maybe even divinely inspired people. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is that that narrative has skewed our sense of what creativity is and what its place is in the lives of humanity. And it's reserved for only a very few. And so your friend naturally says, I'm not creative because he's not participating in that particular discourse. Well, and then that sort of model that you talked about in terms of madness, genius, or divine, I'm listening to that and I'm wondering, how was that model not applied to, say, for example, professional athletes, right? Because, for example, I mean, one could argue, maybe, right, that the gods, because if you're at that level, right, if you're an elite athlete, it is a divine, godlike, maybe even madness that allows them to do what they do. And yet, in, at least in my experience, that that model doesn't really get applied to sports. You know, it's an interesting notion. But you and I, I mean, to your point, though, right? I mean, you and I both know that, sure, yeah, sure, there's madness, sure, there's genius, sure, there's maybe spiritual influence. But at the end of the day, you know, you need your 10,000 hours, you need yeah. your 20,000 hours, you need your 50,000 hours. Right, exactly. Right. 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 And so there's no way around that. But I've wrung my hands about this for a long time, about why we seem to be so simplistic in our thinking around what is creativity, what is artistry, right? What is art and who can or cannot make it? <laughs> you know, I'm reminded of, I'm sure you've read Gordon McKenzie's book, The Orbiting the Giant Hairball. But in his poignant story where he talks about, he goes and he talks to school kids and he always starts his talks with the same question. And that question is, who here is an artist? And in kindergarten, every kid in the class raises their hand. Hmm. And then by about third grade, second or third mm -hmm. grade, you get one little kid in the back 
that says I'm an artist. And, you know, while that book was written a long time ago and Gordon's not with us anymore, but you know, I think it's probably still true that for whatever reason, we've created a system of education specifically, I guess, that elevates certain things and mitigates other things. And, you know, if we're really interested and I'm going bigger now, but I mean, if we're really interested in developing a well-adjusted, holistic, healthy (laughs) community and culture and society, I guess liberal arts education is sort of the the way we, you know, we've sort of, we we have to double down on liberal arts. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think you're spot on with what you're saying. And frankly, I think the project that we need to be working on, what I'm trying to write about, and I think what you're doing so admirably in your work and in this podcast specifically, is to democratize creativity. Yes, yes. And to understand that, again, we have this dominant narrative, and it's been around for centuries, that dictates who and what a creative person is, that is so fundamentally limited, and frankly, so male. I mean, the whole etymology of genius comes from male procreative abilities, and it was reserved entirely for that field. There's, you know... So immediately cuts out half the population. But in any case, it's a deeply, profoundly narrow way of defining what is creative. And I think if we open up as we are this question of, well, what makes it, how do we understand it? And how do we understand that creative and particularly the making process is essential to our functioning, is Mm. essentially to our, you know, the whole question of what does it mean to make a life? And you don't make a life because you're a genius. You don't make a life because you have some great vision in the way Michelangelo did, as he saw the angel in the stone and chipped away until he set it free, right? What we do when we make a life is we engage as creative people do, as artists do, if we want to go back to the paradigm. We have urges, we have notions, we have needs, we have questions, we have stomach aches that compel us forward to entering a place of the unknown, really of uncertainty. And we make within that place of the unknown. And it's through the making. It's through the engaging. And if you put it in the language of writing, not to get too general about life, we put it in the language rather of creativity, you can put it in writing. It's about what it means to engage in the process of writing to begin to understand something about what your story is or what your ideas are or what you're trying to get at. The writing itself, you've heard people talk about novels say the book wrote itself, right? That's an incredibly interesting idea to me. Or you've heard Alexander Calder said, I think best in wire. Hmm. As he engages with materials, he moves mm-hmm. that, he, he is thinking. And then Joan Didion adds a really, the writer Joan Didion adds a really lovely kind of element to this. And that is that it's not only about what it is, you, when, when we enter uncertainty, it's the making not only produces, is re- revelatory about what it is we want to create, but we learn about ourselves. And she had this wonderful line that I would have no reason to write if I could access my thoughts in any other way. <laughs> right. So that very act of creativity of writing, or Calder with the wire, or some the, the the engaging materials in painting, or whatever it is, it's not only what we are producing, but how we access ourselves, how we begin to understand who we are, how we think, or how we engage, or how we move through the world, and that that making process, that creative process, opens up a whole way of understanding that is profound and incredibly important. So there's a lot at stake here. This isn't just 
la-di-da. It's nice to democratize creativity. It's really a, an insight into understanding, I think, our behavior of who we are, of how we engage, of how we learn, how we know, how we relate, how we understand what this life is all about. Well, you know, it's fascinating, too, because as you're talking, I'm like sort of thinking about how if the goal, right, is a healthy, productive, well-adjusted society, then that would imply that we are able to become, not just become who we're meant to become, but to have the courage, maybe in the tools, in the language, right, to express ourselves in a way that is healthy. There's so much pressure, right, to suppress, deny, ignore maybe who we are, our feelings, our opinions, our thoughts, you know, and that gets played out into making. If we buy into a paradigm that says, well, making is for artists or making is for designers or making is for our actors or musicians, then suddenly people they think they, they can't do that. And then they also maybe don't realize that their gardening and their woodworking and their cooking and their quilting is also an art form or creative process or making, they don't, they're just limiting, right? It just, it just goes back to this idea of not giving oneself enough credit and freedom, right? And, you know, not to be reductive about it, but it's just like emotion, like emotional well-being or psychological or mental health. Can we be mentally healthy if we're not making? I don't think so. Yeah, I think you're right. I would just extend what you're saying it's not only recognizing, you know, your, your quilting or your cooking or your doodling as being part of a creative life. I would extend it even further to our relationships. Mm. Our relationships are a kind of making, a collective kind of making. I think the world of therapy is really interesting that way too. When you think about the making that is therapy, you don't go in with a vision. You have to actually do the making, which is the conversation, which is the engagement with the therapist, is, which is the, again, there's a, a kind of creative engagement there that might lead to some way of understanding or discovery or thriving, even if it's not put in the terms of any kind of particular language. And I think when you begin to think like that, it's acknowledging, again, an aspect of who we are that's critical to the thriving you're talking about. It's just such an exciting way to begin to look at our experience. Mm. I just find it the most interesting thing in the world, really. Well, and I, I do love the notion of making, you know, and, you know, I feel like it's probably important for us to unpack that a little bit because I don't want people to think that what you, I mean, I mean you know, I don't think you're suggesting this. <laughs> I haven't read all of the book, but I've read some of it anyway. The point is, is that this the idea of making that there is the goal is the outcome is the output is the thing. What making reveals is really what right. I'm and and about. yeah, sure. Some sometimes there is something, an end product of some kind, right? That right. that that we get to show or or share or tell or whatever. But just the act of when we talk about making, we're talking about a, just a creative endeavor, right? A creative exercise that allows people to get those energies and those juices and those muscles and those nerve, those synapses and those nerves firing in a way that is almost like, I don't know, working out, you know, if you want to bring it back to some sort of health metaphor, the act of making, I think is a exercise in health, right? On some level, but anyway, but it, it, there's no pressure here, right? To 
finish that cabinet you're building or finish that song you're writing or finish that play you're writing. The, the actual fact that you were doing it and you kept doing it and you kept iterating, you kept trying. I mean, there's just, there's huge currency and compensation and benefit in the doing. Right, right. So thank you for that comment. And I do think it's important to concretize some of the things that we're talking about. Otherwise, it does remain far too abstract. The way I break it down in the book and the way I've learned to think about it from talking to really hundreds of artists and designers to try to understand what they do and then to extrapolate it into the worlds we were talking about. There are four things really that I focus on in that ways in which we define making. And let me just review them really quickly. One is the notion of entering uncertainty. And I was just explaining that, uh-huh. right? That what artists and designers talk about is not like Michelangelo. It's not that there's a cliche that goes, what artists do is they manifest some already great vision. And most artists and designers that I speak to don't talk about it that way. Again, they have a question or an idea or a notion, and they go into a place of uncertainty and they explore through the making what that ultimately will be. And let me just say as an aside, I'm not talking about building the plane as we fly. I'm not talking about just kind of winging it. That's absolutely contrary to what we were saying before. Your skill, your talent, your education, your ethics, your values, all of that is hugely significant in the process of making. But my point is, is that that it's the scaffolding that we stand on as we reach into places of uncertainty and begin to engage there and in a process of really trying to make in this broad way in which I'm talking about it. So entering uncertainty is the first. The second is the notion of how we engage with material. And that can be the writer with words, it can be the ceramicist with clay, it can be the painter with canvas, it can be the installation artist with space, It can be the songwriter with instruments or musical notes or whatever the case is. There's always an engagement of material that we need to think about. And that, how we think about engaging with material becomes this fascinating way to think about what making can be and how we can understand it. Even to the point of some saying that, you know, their material is time in the the engage temporally. And I, I find that to be incredibly interesting. The third area is solving problems and to understand making as a problem solving schema. And that really, you know, designers teach us a lot about that, that it's kind of in certain ways and to certain designers, it's axiomatic. That's what they do. They solve problems, but their making is always in service to that problem solving. And so a lot of really interesting things come out of that as well. And then the fourth area really is about improvisation and performance and musicians and theater artists and uh, actors and act- actresses tell us, a, tell us a lot about that. And what's interesting about improvisation is that it's the making of the thing and the thing made are one and the same. They happen simultaneously. And there's a kind of magic to that. And it's when the notion of make to know really is aligned in all kinds of interesting ways. And so out of these four things become a really rich and interesting way of thinking about making, of taking what artists and designers do and beginning to extrapolate how that works in our lives, how that works in our lives as artists and designers, but how that also works in our lives and all these other areas that we were talking about before and can kind of give a context to this kind of recognition of who we are as human beings who make and who make to and how essential that is to how we how we live and how we engage with experience. I'm thinking about my own experience making things, whether it's playing with materials or approaching the blank canvas <laughs> just because, and what are you going to do, or problem solving a problem, so on and so forth. And 
you know, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, and this, this is so reductive, but I've just seen again and again, I've had the opportunity to work with designers and artists my whole career, but although I don't consider myself an artist, but that's a very interesting point too, right? Because I like to say, you know, I'm an artist with a lowercase a, not a capital A, but. Mm -hmm. but and I'm going to interrupt for a second because yeah. I, I would challenge you on that the way you challenged your your lawyer friend. Thank you. I think you're, you're a deeply creative person and I've listened to your I've listened to your podcast and I know a little bit about the work that you're trying to do and the project that you've set aside. And you are on a creative journey of great importance in your effort really to start a different kind of conversation and for, for people to think in different kinds of ways. And I don't know, in my book, that's that's pretty creative. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Lauren. That means a lot. And, you know, it's sort of one of those things I just, I just do what I do, right? Like labels become, you know, almost like, you know, too complicated sometimes. Sure. And sure. Yeah, sure. So, but anyway, what I'm getting at is just, I'm thinking of various times in my life that I've been making things, whether it was just for the joy of, of making, or maybe there was a real task at hand of some kind, or maybe I was helping produce, I was working with another artist or designer you know, to produce something. And there's just, I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's just, that's where the magic is. And I don't mean to sound so reductive, but I feel like that's sort of the joy of this whole conversation too, because there is magic in the world and, and it, it becomes revealed when we're playing with materials and when we're trying to ponder a, a problem and we have, and we give ourselves time. You know, you mentioned that word time. It's amazing to me how ignorant, else I'll use that word, how ignorant people can be, and I use people broadly, about the time required, right, in the making and in the creativity. How many artists or designers have we talked to, friends of ours, or how many clients have we've had over the years where they said, well, you know what, just can you get that to me tomorrow? Can you get that to me next week? No. <laughs> no, not if you, not if you want it done well and done thoughtfully. And that sort of goes back a little bit to my initial question, which is what would the world look like, right? If creativity, making, design, thinking, arts appreciation, arts education, you know, like what if we were really taught those things from K through 12 in a really robust way, like we are science or math or English, maybe the collective conscience or there's just the collective kind of understanding of creativity and art would change so fundamentally that that kind of naivete would go away because people would just generally understand like, oh yeah, no, making takes time and I'm going to give you the time you need, but please be as expeditious as you can, but take the time you need. <laughs> right. And part of the reason it needs time is because we need to be able to confront failure along the way. Right, right. There's lots of failure. And that's something we can teach. That's something we can begin to recognize in a different kind of way, because all of us think about failure as some sort of catastrophe or some sort of source of shame or something that we, uh, some shortcoming that we may have. But in fact, and boy, we really try hard to teach this at Art Center to these amazingly talented students, that if one thinks of failure not so much as a setback, but as a moment in that process of creating, of making, that allows you to go one direction or another, that allows you to see something rather than another, that allows you to 
find that what you were reaching for there is not in fact in that place, but may very well be in another, but it looks very different than you ever thought it could be. Then you're engaged in what the revealing is of the making process. Then you're engaged in understanding that you're going to slip and bump and go the wrong ways. And if you're open to that kind of process in your art and in your design, that paves the way to something discovered then again, I mean, it's a great metaphor for life and opens up that kind of process. Just the idea of sort of that iterative process of trial and error and the sort of reductive, simplistic idea that failure is bad, when in fact, you'll know, call it the price of an education. I mean, you're learning, you know, assuming you're learning, right? Assuming you're processing those inputs and that data in a way that gets you to where you're going, you know, sort of my old joke about it's one step forward, it's two steps back, one step forward, hey, we're dancing. You know, like, right. you know, it's it's that's the energy of it. And to deal with failure, and frankly, to deal with entering uncertainty, because uncertainty, I can I can talk all day long about what a creative place uncertainty is, but it's also a very destabilizing place. It's 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 terrifying, right? To to go into places we don't know, to face these things, to face our failure, to face going into uncertainty requires a level of courage. And here's where I kind of would often talk about my work at Art Center is really what we're doing in a kind of fundamental way is we're teaching courage. And so then you have to ask, well, what are the sources of that? What gives you that kind of courage? And I think you and I were touching on it earlier. I think skill, I think practice, I think experience, community, community of artists, community of fellow creators, community of fellow students, of faculty of what it means to participate in a community that is making, but also a community like the one you're building in which people are, are asking questions and are wrestling with issues. I think the courage comes from just the 10,000 hours, that the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours that you were talking about before. And to have that and to be able to go into it and to understanding it, but in addition to understanding how this all fits with the larger community, the larger discipline that you're involved in, the history of that particular discipline, whether it's in design or if it's in painting or if it's in, it doesn't really, you know, but understanding that you're part of a conversation that's been ongoing. These are the things that I think are really important. And, you know, I know that one of the questions that is really important to ask right now is art school worth it? And, you know, we can have a conversation about that and we can have certainly a conversation about thinking about it on a strictly financial or monetary level. But if art school is helping hone and develop the courage one needs to take this on, to enter these places of uncertainty, to develop skills so the freedom exists, to really be able to wrestle with issues of failure, I think it's doing something really, really important. How we put a monetary value on that, I don't know, but I think it's doing something really important. Well, and you're hitting on such a strategic point, you know, this idea of courage and teaching courage. I mean, I, I would, maybe this is too reductive, but I mean, I've said to kids over the years, just say yes. How many people are afraid of opportunity? Or, and this gets back to the failure part, right? Well, I've never done that, or I might fail, or they're scared, whatever. Well, of course you're scared. You yeah, know? You it's should ter- be. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. Yeah. You know, to put yourself out there. But but how are you gonna how's you gonna learn? How's you gonna grow? And so that's sort of been my thing, just saying yes. And we, you know, we talk about making a life, but you make a life by saying yes to things. You're absolutely right. Totally agree. 
And that's where the courage comes from. You know, I mean, one of the ways that you build that courage, you build that backbone, you build that grit. And it goes for, you know, anybody. It's just not art students or creative people. You know, it's anybody. I'm sort of, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I mean, I grew up, I'm a blue collar. I'm a working class kid from a blue collar town in the Midwest outside Chicago. I was born in Gary, Indiana. I went to a public school that had a great arts program, had a great liberal arts program, thankfully. But I was raised in a culture in a time where art, I mean, that wasn't a real job. Get a real job. But I, for whatever reason, had other ideas, other goals, other whatever. I left the nest, didn't look back, <laughs> took a lot of risks, damn near died a few times. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. I get to sit down and talk to you about these really heady topics. But so many of my friends and family that I love dearly that I grew up with are still back home. You know, they, they didn't say yes. They mm-hmm. said no. Mm-hmm. Played it safe. And, you know, if they're happy, great. I'm not judging, but I'm just saying you do have to put yourself out there and, and say yes in times when it is scary, very scary. Right. And, and then it becomes interesting to think about, well, what's the, what's the support mechanism that can help people do what you're talking about? What gives somebody the courage to go into these unknown places? Well, that, and that I can think, be so rich. Yeah. Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, well, and I mean, I would argue that one of the ways that you give those kids courage is by exposing them and giving them information. My public school system, I mean, we had, you know, it was a liberal arts, you know, we had, of course, sports and great academics, but we had not just visual arts and, you know, but we had theater and jazz band and symphonic orchestra. I mean, we had all that stuff. But all that's gone now. I mean, all the budget, the money's gone away. And so my whole thing is, well, how the heck are you going to make up that gap? And it's not just at the high school level or junior high school. I'm even talking about kids. Art Center is a unique exception in some ways because it's Art Center. But other schools, you know, kids coming out of it, they may still feel incredibly intimidated because they don't have enough information about how maybe the real world works or how the business of their industry works. And so my thing is, well, I feel like the missing link and you talk about democratizing art, you've got to democratize art media. We got to rethink art journalism. And part of that, and I'm jumping around a little bit, but also on a related note, part of that courage that we're talking about, I would suggest also coming from understanding how fundamental creatives and makers and designers and artists are to the overall creative, to the overall economy, the global economy. I mean, Ernst & Young in 2015 issued that study in partnership with the United Nations and CSAC and and a few, you know, but anyway, they valued the creative economy across 11 sectors, including visual arts, performing arts, architecture, gaming, books, music. I mean, you know, all of it at 2 trillion, right? 2 trillion. Now that's not nothing. And, you know, I could make an argument that that's underperforming and that's a whole nother conversation. But the point is, is that as an artist, designer, creative, if you start to realize that you are the core driver of a $2 trillion global economy and that Wall Street, they've got the capital, but you've got the creative, you start to see the symbiotic one plus one equals three kind of dynamic. And I think that's where the courage comes from, right? You, you start to say, wait a minute. I know who I am in this world and I know the value that I create in this world. And, and I just feel like for us, just to bring it back around, the idea that media, entertainment, edutainment, storytelling 
can help to serve that gap, bridge that gap in arts defunding, you know, the defunding of arts education, I think is really kind of an interesting thing to think about. You know, the, the simplistic kind of example that I use just to kind of illustrate this, it's like, well, until there is a talk radio channel on Sirius XM dedicated to the arts or art and creativity, we've got a long way to go. I mean, how great would that be, right? Just to turn on that channel and you just hear some professional dancer talking about the good, bad, and ugly of what it means to be a professional dancer. Well, that 16-year-old kid in Indiana, like I was back in 86, they're going to hear that and they're going to get that courage. I'm really grateful to hear your story that way. And I think one of the ways in which we can instill courage or help people find courage in our community is also by sharing our personal stories. And my own actually has relevance to some of the things that you're talking about. I'm a trained theater director and also a college president, and the two of them are incredibly... I've gone on record saying that I think being a theater director is the greatest preparation to be a college president possibly can. And I just want to spend a minute talking about why. But my history of learning how to direct is really interesting because I remember I took a course in college and I had no clue what I was doing. And the whole idea was if you want to direct, then you're going to have to direct. And the first assignment was direct a short piece. And I went into that. I knew enough to cast it and to schedule a verse rehearsal, but that was about all. And suddenly it was when I came to that rehearsal, terrified And I started engaging with actors and moving people around and batting around ideas and using text and going through the making, theatrically speaking, that I began to discover something really exciting. I came in with ideas. I came in with thoughts, but I didn't know really what I wanted to make. I know people who can kind of block out and stage plays in the margins of the text and then go walk into rehearsal and do it. I could never do that. But when I was directly engaged in the making, in rehearsal, in with real people, something uh-huh. came alive for me. Necessity uh-huh. descended, and I was able to, to open up and see in a way I couldn't in a margin of a text. And that became a kind of progression to really understanding what it means to direct in the theater. Because as I was saying before, you go in with an idea, you go in with a concept, you go in with a way of thinking, but then... As the director, you're working with a community, and that community are the actors and the designers and the people who are involved in producing the play. And you enter into a conversation, so that idea or that initial vision, if you will, which is not a word I like to use, becomes so much better because the community begins to wrestle with it and grapple with it. And you know what the ultimate real, the job of the director is ultimately to hand over, to give that power and the knowledge and what the piece is to the actors mainly, because the most important moment in the theater is between a spectator and a performer. And that's where it happens. And nobody's thinking about the director and nobody should be thinking about the director, but something has been given over and there is an interaction there. And being a college president is exactly the same work. I come in with my ideas, with my notions, with a sense of what's possible with my values about what it means to educate people. But then it becomes better and richer and more nuanced and more sophisticated because I'm working with faculty and students and trustees and alumni and a community that's taking those ideas into all kinds of directions I could have never even imagined on my own. And then my job as president is gradually to hand it over to what is essential to those faculty members. Because just like a spectator and a performer are the ones who are central to the theatrical experience, central to the, to the educational experiences between 
the moment between a, a teacher and a student or a student and a student or whatever that is. And you've made that, and nobody should be thinking about the college president at that point. There's something alive that's happening in that moment. And so those two things have become really important sort of parallels in my own work of how I've actually taken one and been able to translate it into another arena so meaningfully. The other thing I would say too about leadership and creativity, and I think this gets to some things you were saying too before, is that the whole idea of what it means to provide leadership, again, we tend to think about it as this follow the leader model. I have a vision come with me, and I've just explained that's it's not how it works for me at all. As a matter of fact, I'll confess right here on your on your podcast, when people used to ask me, what's your vision for Art Center? I always used to be a little, it's just not a question that ever made total sense to me. I mean, I had deep values about what I believed in and what I wanted and how I wanted to see students learn. And I had deep ethical issues and I had deep social needs that I wanted to meet. And the vision for seemed to me like, I felt at least that they were asking me to, to describe the angel that I see in the stone. And that's not who I am or not how I work. And I came across a great story that maybe it would be interesting to tell your listeners that completely revolutionized my way of thinking about leadership in this very spirit. And it's actually about a designer. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's a story that happened about 20 years ago now in a small town in the Netherlands. And there was a traffic intersection that was incredibly dangerous. And cars were crashing all the time and bicyclists would be injured and pedestrians would be struck. It was a disaster. And what the traffic authorities did more and more is they would put up more restrictions, more signs, slow down here, don't turn there, don't turn on this light, and all these instructions. And it seemed that the more they did that, the worse things got. And a traffic designer by the names of Hans Monderman came along. And what interested him was not so much to add, but in fact, to subtract, to open up. And he was really struck by really crowded skating rinks where people would actually generally look, they had an instinct to look out for each other. They would move, but you know there were not a lot of accidents. Or you think about the way a flock of birds fly or a school of fish swim. There's a way in which something can happen in precise choreography that is kind of part of a natural instinct. And he thought, that's what we need to do. That's the kind of spirit we need to bring to this to make this work. And so instead, instead of adding things, he ripped it all apart and he put a roundabout. And immediately there was like zero crashes. Bicyclists were safe. Pedestrians weren't getting injured. The problem was solved immediately through this roundabout. And part of the interesting thing, to go back to what we were talking about before, is people reported as they were approaching the roundabout, they weren't exactly sure. So they naturally slowed down. Right. Right. Because they were entering uncertainty, if you to yeah. use the language yeah. of our conversation here, they were entering uncertainty. They naturally slowed down and they participated. The people, the bicyclists, the drivers, the pedestrians all were became aware of each other in a way and participated in their own safety. They made it. When I talk about handing over to the actors or handing over to the faculty, what I think Monderman did is he handed the safety responsibility to the people who were engaged in in it and using it. Mm. And it brought out the best in them. It brought out the best in who they were. And to, again, use our conversation here, they became makers of their own safety. They were creative engagers in solving the problem that was this intersection. And what he provided was the structure for it, the architecture for it. 
And to me, the space, so, the space for it, for it, yeah. right? And to me, so much of leadership is really about that, or theater directing, mm. for that matter, is the best we can do really is build roundabouts with our colleagues, with our communities, so that they can mm. be participants in their own creative thriving. Yeah, I mean, what a poignant story. What year was that? Do you recall? It was about twenty years ago, so it's just a, you know in the early two thousands. Yeah, what I love about that story, there's several aspects of it. To your point about leadership, you know, I just on a personal level, I'm I'm thinking about the best bosses I've had or managers I've had and and how I've led and managed myself when I've led teams, which is this idea of defining success. What is the goal? Like what is success in this context? And everybody agrees like, oh, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And then let them go do it. You know, life's hard enough. I don't need to micromanage a bunch of people. It would just give you a lot of rope. And if I've hired good people and have a good team and, you know, I trust the people, you know, you have that kind of freedom maybe to let them go do that. But the other thing I really love about that story is in this kind of gets back to maybe a core ingredient, a fundamental ingredient of making, which is the act of, of observation, right? Because the designer in this context He obviously understood the problem very well, but the solution came from him observing the skating rink, right? And connecting those dots, you know, and I feel like somebody once told me, an artist friend of mine told me, we were talking about art school and the value of it. And he said, well, the number one thing I got out of art school was that art school taught me how to see. And that gets to, you know, even the story here, which is being able to be open and observant and aware of of what you're seeing and relating that to the challenges of the day, (laughs) perhaps, right? Right. right. Yeah. Nice. Isn't it fascinating that the authoritarian voice didn't work? The signs, the orders, the instructions, that that ultimately didn't allow for human thriving? Again, the follow the leader concept or the follow the authoritarian kind of point of view, but there was, Mm. you know, here we are on election day, the echo of if only I can fix it, like there's one versus a collective engagement, a sense of, again, if you celebrate people as makers, they can participate in making their own thriving, making their own safety, which we, we keep on, which I keep on. Because I mean, part of the flip side of some of this, you want to talk about rules of the road, so to speak, or governance, it's just that governance. If you can create the space where people can govern themselves in a humane, empathetic way, that's the ideal, right? It, it's, it is on election day an interesting thing because some would argue, right, <laughs> not to get into politics, but some would, some would argue, oh, less, less government. You've just said less government. You know, so it's that delicate balance, right? Of, Uh-oh. Of what, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, <laughs> not my angle, but if less government at least partially means that people can participate in their own thriving, then that's, a, that's something to take seriously, I think. Well, and it's, I mean, part of, I mean, to bring it back around, I mean, it gets to this idea of good design equals good thinking, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And good government, if, and we'll get off this government thing, but I mean, you know, to to the extent that our good governance is about good design, you know, the problem is we don't seemingly create the space to have that time to think about what that means and creating policies that actually work for all of the Commonwealth, not just one set of people. But anyway, <laughs> I'm just loving this conversation. Lauren, where were you? Where did you? Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I'm Canadian. Grew up in Toronto. 
Love Toronto. Had many, many fun nights in Toronto. Yeah, great city. So I grew up there, stayed there through college, and then ended up going to the theater department at Stanford for my PhD. I lived in Manitoba myself for a while. I have wonderful memories in your country. Do you get back much? I do. Still have all my family there, and I go back uh, regularly throughout the year. Yeah, it's an amazing city. It's an amazing city. And the book, and Make to Know, actually has a lot of Canadian content, only because on the theater and performing side, which was my background there, I was able to make all kinds of connections and interview a lot of theater artists and musicians there. It was a big part of you know what I was able to create in, in those particular fields. So you're at a certain point in life, you've got some amazing experiences and accomplishments, you've given so much, you have still have so much to give. I mean, what are the next... 10 years look like for you, Lauren? Well, let's see. I mean, I'm apropos of our conversation, I feel like I'm moving into a whole different kind of creative phase. Mm-hmm. So I left Art Center on July 1 after 13 years. Greatest job of my life. Fantastic. Yep. But, and this is, this is a kind of a wonderful moment. My work was done there. I had felt a calling to do other things. So it was time for me to move on. And, and it, you know, it's a, it, it is a good feeling to know your work's done and somebody else needs to do the work now and bring a different kind of point of view there. And that's good. And so now, so what are these other creative projects? I'm, I'm doing a lot more writing. I'm working on another book. I did, by the way, the audio book for Make to Know. So if folks are interested in the, it's coming out in the next two or three weeks. So it'll probably Fantastic. be Fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. You, you I, uh, are yeah. the voice. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. read it? Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife says she detects my Canadian accent in it. We'll see if you can pick that up. Good, good. <laughs> Keep it real. <laughs> yeah. So I've been doing that too. And I'm also looking at trying to make a, a docu-series of this book and been talking to a lot of people about it. Love that. The idea of the yeah. docu-series would be, so you establish as we did the idea of what Make to Know might be with for artists and designers, but then really do a series on education, a series on leadership, a series on spiritual life, a series on sports, or, or an episode on all of those, not a series, mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. begin to explore the notion of this whole point that we've been addressing this whole time of who we are, human beings as makers. The other really interesting and exciting thing about the book is that, well, to put it in a kind of positive light, people feel it very empowering to put put it in a more common discourse. It's kind of has a self-help quality. That's been a huge response to the book. Like you've kind of freed me up to do my work, to feel like I don't have to know everything before I start to create something, which was a huge reason why I wrote the book, by the way, because I saw these brilliant students at Art Center who felt like they had to have it all figured out and faculty would report that to me before they could start doing their projects. And that's not the point at at all. So to be able to, uh, you know, see that, well, Frank Geary worked that way and Franz von Holzhausen, the chief designer of Tesla worked that way and Anne Hamilton works that way and Keith Jarrett works that It's liberating. It's like, we can also feel like, you know, we can begin to move forward without having to know everything beforehand. Anyway, so I'm interested in doing that and I'm exploring with various different folks who are in the business, what's going to take to make this. And as I say, I'm writing another book and maybe I'll do some theater projects. And that's what this time is for me. And some podcasts, by the way, I, I you know, I did a podcast at Art Center called Change yeah. Lab that I loved. I loved, I loved doing it. Are you going to keep podcasting or? That one's on, we're not clear about that, whether I'll, yeah. well, we're not going to clear about whether or not we'll continue Change Lab, but yeah, it might be fun to, uh, to do some other things, to get involved in podcasting in a different way. If you decided just to sort of make making <laughs> your exclusive soapbox, so to speak, 
your exclusive mission. I think that's just so important because it is that sort of liberating, empowering force or idea that could give people the permission, right, to start expressing themselves in this way because the more outlets for our humanity, the better. And, you know, from a selfish standpoint, this is a long time ago, it was a different time, but I grew up, you know, the 70s and 80s in the Midwest and, you know, music was a big part of our family. And turns out my sister was a vocal prodigy. She's a professional singer to this day. My best friend, who's kind of like an older brother, he was a musical prodigy, keyboardist, pianist, played all over the world. I was not a natural, but I worked my butt off and, you know, won many awards playing alto saxophone and playing jazz and classical music. But it was this reductive idea back in the 70s and 80s that, you know, you were either good enough to, if you know, well, the whole point was, are you good enough to perform? And if not, you probably taught. <laughs> right. Right. And how reductive and horrible is that? Right. And f- in, for myself, I remember thinking coming out of high school, like, well, I'm not good enough to have a career performing and I don't really want to teach. So I'm just going to hang up my saxophone. And man, what a tragedy. I mean, I could have been having fun on the weekends playing at the corner pub for laughs and free beers or whatever. And I was that good at least. And, you know, and, and so anyway, so this, these conversations, your book, your doc, you hopefully your docu-series, I mean, all everything you're doing and hopefully everything I'm doing serves to empower people to give themselves permission to express themselves creatively beyond these reductive, simplistic notions of who can and can't play. Beautifully said, man. Beautifully said. Thank you. Will you come back? You bet. All right. You bet. Wonderful to engage um, in those those issues and those questions with you. Yeah. Well, I would, you know, listen, I mean, in all candor, I mean, I've got the endurance of Joe Rogan. I mean, we could do this for three hours, but <laughs> I want to be more respectful of your schedule and time. I'm so grateful, Lauren, that you took time out of your busy schedule to come on and chat and solve the world's problems and chop it up with me because I think that this is important work. The world would be a far better place, empathetic, human, interesting place if more people felt empowered and understood the power. It's been a pleasure, really. And I mean it when I say a lot of respect for you and a lot of admiration for your project and what you're trying to do and where you're reaching. And we're all going to benefit a lot and learn a lot from what you're doing and already have. So thank you. And thanks for inviting me to be part of this and yeah, for just asking some great questions. Well, I appreciate that, Lauren. Thank you so much. We'll sign off. Don't go anywhere. Hang tight. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcasts and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.